Today on episode number 394 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, Tracy Addy joins me to talk about what inclusive instructors do. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Dr. Tracy Addy is the Associate Dean of Teaching and Learning and Director of the Center for the Integration of Teaching, Learning, and Scholarship at Lafayette College in Easton, Pennsylvania, where she works with instructors across all divisions and ranks to develop and administer programming related to the teacher-scholar model. She's the co-author of What Inclusive Instructors Do, Principles and Practices for Excellence in College Teaching. Today's guest was introduced to me through my partnership with the Association of College and University Educators, or AQ. AQ's certificate programs equip educators with evidence-based teaching practices to improve student outcomes and create inclusive, equitable learning environments. For more than five years, AQ has connected me with experts and faculty developers who are featured in AQ's courses, as well as certified faculty to share their work on teaching in higher ed. Tracy Addy, welcome to Teaching in Higher Ed. It's my pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me to be a guest today, Bonnie. Can you take us back in time and tell us about your experience in education before you yourself were actually a part of education? Definitely. So I come from a family of educators. So my parents, both in K-12 teaching environments, I also have a variety of other you know, aunts, uncles, etc., that have really played a profound role in my thoughts around teaching and learning, seeing them teach, you know, in their environments or hearing lots of different stories about the classroom and just the role model that they were in inspiring students um, in their classes. So early on, I will say that I was always, you know, a very inquisitive child, loved learning, loved exploring new things. I still am kind of that way. I like to just, you know, very much so explore new things that curiosity has not changed. Um, And then in my settings, you know, I, I became really interested, I think by the time I was in high school, with this idea of how do people learn and in teaching and things like that. I used to admire my teachers too, and just the ability that they had to be able to help us, you know, be able to learn all these interesting and important concepts. So I would say very early on, I got, you know, the bug, I guess, around teaching and learning. I also like to tutor my classmates as well um, in in schooling. So I was definitely a a student that liked school (laughs) and I liked to be really engaged and just learn many different things. So that was kind of early on when I was in high school and, and earlier. When I got to college, I did decide to major in a the STEM discipline. So I did also fall in love with uh, many of the sciences, especially biology. So I ended up majoring in biology, but I did really still 
have a real interest and desire in teaching and learning and those types of environments. In fact, many of my peers would also say, oh, you know, you should go into teaching and learning, <laughs> like just because it emanated from me so much in, in, in my day to day and the things that I did, the activities that I did. So eventually I went to graduate school for my discipline in, in science. And, but I still like, I had these moments, I guess, where I was just trying to figure out how do I grapple with my interests so strong in teaching and learning and these other interests that I have in, in science and other other types of uh, disciplines. And so I did go to graduate school. I got my, my master's degree and I decided I actually was going to stop and teach. And so I was like, I'm going to teach at different levels of education. I went all the way from K-12, community college, various types of institutions. Um, I also went to, you know, universities and I just wanted to explore and try to figure out how I could kind of grapple with this idea. I eventually did get a full-time position at, and in that time period, at a community college, which I really enjoyed and I loved and enjoyed that environment. Um, and then my husband moved, we moved because of a family move. And so I actually went back to school to get my doctorate in science education. And I thought that, you know, that would be a great way to try to grapple and, and reconcile my teaching. And I also had a mentor or sponsor who actually encouraged me to do that. You know, you, you should try to see what else is out there around this teaching and learning. I think you'll really enjoy it. So I decided to do that. And I got my doctorate in science education. I went there, you know, to that program and I was like, wow, this is really what I was looking for. <laughs> like, this is, this is the teaching and learning, the research around it, the ideas around it. You know, I also taught at the time as well. I also worked with a center for teaching and learning when I was there and I was exposed to that. So it was a really kind of profound time. I decided to keep teaching for a while uh, after that, you know, a, a period of time and then kind of make the jump to a center for teaching and learning. And that's where I am you know, right now. And of course, I have more kind of story there. But that's basically my overall journey into where I'm at now. I have been someone who has been fascinated with teaching from a very young age, like you, although I don't remember wondering as much about how people learn. I, I can still recall being six, five or six years old and having the teacher's editions of the books. So mm -hmm. I think at my time, I mean, I, I don't want to put too much on myself, but I probably thought of teaching as we have a book and it has the right answers. Mm -hmm. And then these other people don't know the right answers and we have to check and make sure <laughs> that they have the right answer. So I think my idea about what teaching and learning is, of course, has evolved so much. What is a way that your own early paradigms and you're wondering your curiosity about how people learn, what's one profound way that you've seen it change, you know, in terms of a model that you carry with you today that looks very different from the one you carried as you began to be curious about this back in high school? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. I think back then I used to be very curious about why, you know, certain concepts and when I learned them or I could grasp them really quickly and certain ones, it took me a while. <laughs> so like, why did this come quickly? Why did this not? Um, and I didn't really have any kind of background on it. I know, you know, I knew good study practices, you know, I tried to be a good student and all of that stuff, <laughs> but I really didn't know, you know, kind of deeply why. And I think then I used to just think, you know, I'd just go in, kind of try to just memorize things and kind of go from there over time. 
and especially with getting more training and thinking about teaching and learning and, edu- and, and education and how people learn in these settings, I became more, I think I became more acutely aware of the nuances all involved in the whole entire learning process. For example, your prior knowledge can have a huge impact on, you know, being able to learn certain material. So if I was exposed to it before, you know, I probably would do better. And, and before, you know, like as you know, a student, I wouldn't, you know, really think about that as much, although I'd be, you know, probably thinking, oh, well, I've seen this before, etc. But not like kind of as deeply. Or for example, I know I had to, I, I got from some of my teachers, you know, one of my teachers in particular in high school used to say, well, you should keep practicing, keep quizzing yourself and whatnot. And I was like, okay, you know, and, and the teacher had all of these questions we had to answer, like hundreds of questions. So I remember thinking then, why does he make us answer this question so many times? And this is for like an AAP kind of class. And so, and I was like, I do it, you know, maybe I know, you know, my teacher has my best interest. This teacher has my best interest in mind. And so, you know, later knowing that retrieval practice is really important in learning, you know, and so later I, you know, could solidify kind of some of those things that I was kind of exposed to or kind of had disjointed knowledge of like, why does it work? How does it work? So I think those are kind of a few examples that would highlight my, you know, very early knowledge of like thinking about teaching and learning, how learning works, and then, you know, now later knowledge. A lot of prior guests have spoke about their passion for learning new things. And I always get curious about that. Are there any things that come to mind for you right now that you're working on learning at this present moment? At this present moment, let's see, what am I learning that's new? I'm always like, you know, kind of reading different books and things like that. So I'm pretty much very interested in general in just developing new knowledge in the field and and teaching and learning, et cetera. So you know, there's not like one thing I think I'm really focused on right now, I think in learning, but more broadly, you know, I'm always kind of open to different things. And I think later, I'll talk a little bit about in the recommendations (laughs) section about some things that I've been learning and thinking about. Yeah, a friend of mine just got me excited about this new podcast that's about the Supreme Court. I'll put this in the show notes, by the way. It's not my official, I'm not ready to officially recommend it because I've only listened to one episode, but it's called strict scrutiny about the Supreme Court. Mm. And I just listened to part of my first episode today and it was really fun, but I started getting fascinated with the idea of if I could memorize all of the amendments to the constitution and know them Mm. right off the bat, either way, like, oh, that one is the second amendment or that one. I think we know (laughs) some of the harder (laughs) ones, some of the harder ones I thought would be fascinating for me to try to do, but I have things like that come up all the time in my mind where like, that'd be cool to learn, but then I don't always follow through on it. But if I look at my past year of reading, which you and I are recording this episode toward the end of the year 2021, and you definitely, you and I have in common this reading books about teaching (laughs) and learning because I'm looking at all the books that I've read. I'm trying to achieve my, my goal I have one book left to finish and I will have achieved my reading goal for the year. And there are certainly a lot of them I have enjoyed reading about teaching and learning. It's fun to have that in common with you. Definitely. All right. So for today, we are going to speak specifically about an aspect of teaching, and that is inclusive teaching. What can you tell us about first what it is and why it is important? 
Inclusive teaching, we can define it in various ways. We took the stance in our book to kind of capture the voices of instructors who, who do it and try to summarize them in type of in a theme, you know, of what we could kind of define it as. So if I take from from what we talked about in the book, I will say that inclusive teaching has a couple of different components. So first, it is being responsive to the diversity of our class and designing learning environments that include all of our students, you know, so that students are engaged in an equitable learning environment, right? It's equitable. And then also the students feel a sense of belonging. So the students also feel as if they're members of the community, they're, they're not excluded from the community, and that it was developed basically with them, them in mind <laughs> first. So that's inclusive teaching. And why is it so important? Well, it's, it's always been important is something that I've always said, but I would say that there's been a lot of increased emphasis in different aspects of inclusive teaching over time. And that's because we have diversity in the students that we teach and we need to be responsive to that diversity and to really think about who's in our classrooms and to really be able to teach, you know, to the students that are there um, so that they grow and develop in, in their educational experiences. Now, Various schools as well, and we see this in higher education, you know, just diversifying in general. So some students from backgrounds, identities that have been historically excluded, right, from education now in increasing numbers are actually able to, you know, go to college and, and, and be able to attend. And so we're also seeing that increased diversity because now they have more access and they have more capability to, to be able to go to college um, as well. That also, you know, makes us need to be more aware of like how who's there and how do we need to help them and sort of serve them and support them while they're at the institution so that they do get a good education while they're there. So inclusive teaching is really important because of who our learners are, because of what they bring to the classroom, because of what we know about belonging. Uh, we know that it's so critical to learning. And even though we think about only the, you know, the content of our courses is important and the skills and all that that the students develop, they also need to feel like they they can be there, that they they actually should be there because that's going to actually hinder or help, you know, depending on which where we're going, which direction there, um, their ability to succeed in, in our in our classes and to seek help and and to be able to do well academically, you know, emotionally, mentally, all of the different ways that students need to go through college. So um, those are some really big reasons why inclusive teaching is, is really critical. You know, it's, it's excellent teaching. It should be part of all of our teaching, you know, ideas. When we think about our teaching, we should be thinking about first and foremost, how do we be inclusive in it? A big part, as you mentioned, is about a sense of being welcoming and a sense of belonging. And you also stress that it isn't just something I can add on to my course and just kind of right on the top or, or, or sadly at the bottom sometimes. I think sometimes when we start speaking about these things, and for people that are less familiar with it, we can try to add it on. And then other times people less familiar with it might look at it in what can I think their desire is to be helpful, but sometimes it comes across as more of a paternalistic sort of a framework for things. And you mentioned helping. I mean, that's a, that's an important aspect that so many of us find meaning in our teaching, but I'd love to have you speak a little bit about 
how we could also continue to evolve our thinking about having more diversity in our classroom, also from a asset-based mindset versus a deficit model. Could you speak a little bit more about that being a helpful paradigm to us? Sure. Yes. I think the deficit model, you know, has been prevalent in higher education in many different settings. It's still present. You know, we still see it today. And that model is basically the fact that, oh, students, you know, they're coming in with all of these deficits, right? They're coming in with things that they can't do, et cetera. And we're focusing on the negative things, the things that they are not able to to do. And so that deficit model also creates a lot of assumptions about students that might not even be true. And it's just, it's a very, it's not a very helpful way to really think about our education system. So with regards to a more of an asset-based model, we start to think about all of the things that the students actually bring to the class, you know, including a willingness to learn. You know, why would they, you know, go to college as well, right? They're there for a reason. Uh, so we can think about our students in terms of the different strengths that they bring to the classroom and also infirm those strengths and support those strengths and encourage them in those strengths as well. Now we're there, they're there to learn. So there will be things that they will indeed grow in, but by starting in that framework, it's going to be a much, you know, a much better experience and a much better philosophical stance around thinking about, you know, how do we design classroom environments for students so that they can grow and grow in ways that build upon there are there are already existing strengths as well. I think sometimes that can transition a feeling of paternalism to actually taking a little bit of pressure off of the teacher. Mm-hmm. I don't have to feel like I could ever understand every culture, every person's unique sense of intersectional identities as they come in it sort of releases me from a feeling like I have to have all those bases covered, but really does evolve our idea of the role of what a teacher is. Would you speak a bit about how you have seen your own idea of what the role of a teacher is and how it's sort of shifted over the, all the time that you've been teaching and also what, what you would encourage um, some of those of us that are not as far along as you, as you, in terms of our evolution of thinking of what that role is. Yeah, so I did a lot of work when I was in graduate school around this idea of kind of, you know, student-centered environments, instructor-centered, and I actually studied beliefs about teaching of of instructors, and so that was basically the work of of my dissertation and looking at those different beliefs and whatnot that were um, espoused. So... I would say that when I think about my own evolution of thinking about teaching early on, I, you know, I would say kind of the more traditional models where we're thinking about, you know, lecture dissemination of information, students just kind of absorb it <laughs> and then they learn. <laughs> so those types of models, I definitely were very early on, you know, thought that those were teaching models, right? So, but then at the same time, there was some conflict in my mind around that because I did see, and I, I, you know, from my experiences, not only just teaching, but also with my family, you know, in in education, how the relational aspect of teaching is so big and so important and being able to connect with students 
in meaningful ways uh, that go beyond just delivering material. So I would say that one of my, you know, ways that I, that's evolved over time is definitely the importance of the student teacher relationship and understanding learners. And that definitely, you know, happened over time in building relationships with students and how critical that was to the actual teaching and learning, you know, processes. Another thing that I also have been really interested in and have also explored ever since graduate school is active learning. I knew, you know, very early on that I actually, you know, I don't prefer to be only lectured at um, in my classroom settings. I really loved classes that had a lot of active involvement. I also myself as an instructor did a lot of active learning, do a lot of active learning in my courses. So that also was another idea that I think evolved even more that you could actually help students learn more over time by having them engage more actively in the material itself. So I think those were probably two big, you know, ideas that really shaped the relationship building and also the engagement in learning in various ways um, that, you know, students could could basically engage in in a classroom setting. Those were a couple I would say that, you know, have have been important. And uh, maybe another one, I could say another one. <laughs> um, so I will say that in, in my particular scenario, you know, my my family members and, and whatnot, they mostly taught in urban settings uh, in K-12 education. I grew up mostly in predominantly white settings, uh, K-12 as well as, as later. And so I had a lot of experiences, you know, as a, as a black female and as a student, you know, and also later in different aspects of my profession and my career that had a profound impact on me. So one of them with regards to teaching and learning was having, you know, I've had negative experiences for sure, but I've also had some positive experiences that have, you know, really seeded my ideas, for example, teachers like presenting things to me and saying, try this or do this opportunity or reaching out in those types of ways. So that also has had a profound effect on me as well and thinking about teaching and learning and how to support all students, you know, having this diversity of students in my class, seeing the assets that they bring and even connecting them with opportunities that, you know, will actually help them grow beyond the classroom. So that, that would be, I think, a third one. Mm. I want to go back a little bit and talk about about active learning because you've done so much of that yourself and then also then modeling that for other teachers who are going to try to do that. What do you see as a common mistake that some of us run into when we begin to try to go down this path of making the learning that we're facilitating more active? Is there any kind of a common mistake or set of challenges that that maybe hold people back from being able to realize the power of active learning? Mm, that's a that's a good question. So one of my big things in active learning has been case studies. So I, I like to publish them and use them in classrooms. So students are doing, you know, group work, they're solving problems um, that go beyond the course kind of material, but it allows them to apply it in, in interesting ways. And I like to do it in creative and different ways. And so I will say that working also in a lot of the case-based learning, but also other types of active learning. One of the things that I think is a big challenge is knowing how much time it takes <laughs> to like do every part and to, to allow students to have time 
to work in groups and to talk through things and just the process of it, I think is, is the hardest thing in the beginning and how to monitor that. I definitely see like, Oh, I, I wanted to try this activity and working with instructors as well. Um, I want to try this activity, but it, it like took like one part took the whole class. <laughs> I was expecting to get through the whole thing. So I think that aspect of like, how do I balance like all of these activities and whatnot that are, that are, active in my class and still allow students to learn, but I still have goals to accomplish, right? I still want my students to learn. They have certain learning objectives, right? Uh, learning outcomes as well. So that would, I would say is a big one. Uh, I think in general though, the first time we do these types of activities, it's always having to be flexible and to learn. Like we're always learning, right? As, as teachers. So we also just have to learn what to do and what it looks like, what things to cut or, or how to modify it so that it still can work in our setting. But that's probably the biggest one um, I, I have seen. In addition to just like worry, just I just don't want to try this in my class because I'm not certain it will go well. And so I'd rather just lecture, you know, so, and then just have it be, a you know, so it's in a confined space in the class and I can get everything I want across. So that would be, you know, just another kind of barrier, even precluding that. Yeah, we've, we're doing a class design institute, sort of a, I forgot the word I'm thinking of when things are squished together. Oh, an intensive, that's the word I'm looking for. We're mm -hmm. doing a class design intensive and I, I'm learning so much. Speaking of facilitating active learning, I'm learning so much. I got to have the group that it's sort of their second time through this experience. And so there's so even that much more shared learning going on. Mm -hmm. And one of my colleagues is so good about being super, super organized. He's got mm -hmm. a whole spreadsheet where he's got all of the things there and it's easier for him to equate and estimate course workload and things like that. And you're reminding me a little bit of that. My, my natural tendency would be to kind of go in and just sort of see, I mean, I'm, it's funny because I'm a planned person, but at the same time, you, you, I guess the spirit of the, of the teaching is like to come in and see what happens, that kind of thing. But I have found with active learning, a lot of people I admire greatly, the more structured we can be, mm -hmm. this is going to take this long. This is going to take this long. And like you, most of the time, the errors that I make and the others I work with is not realizing how long things will take. Mm -hmm. But I do think it's worth us taking just a couple of minutes to, yes, on occasion, it can go the other way. So most sure. of the challenges I see with myself and others, we think it's going to take less time than it actually ends up taking. But then there is a possibility of not attending to it and allowing things to sort of go on and on and on. And mm -hmm. how do you think of that other end of things of how, how do we know when we're, when we're done? Is, is it like, like how, how, how could we make sure that we don't leave too much room for something and it not have the kind of structure that might be most helpful? Hmm. Yeah. So to your first point about the time. I think it's really important to actually delineate the time, just as you mentioned. I think there's a lot we can learn from K-12 education and lesson planning. How long will each part of the like lesson take to that point? And so it sounds like you're mentioning, so sometimes, you know, it could go, we could give it some time to keep going, right? So that the students could continue to engage in these activities in an active way. But when do we stop? Is that, is that kind of the question you're asking? <laughs> like, One thing I've seen on occasion would be like waiting until every single group is completely done. Uh, mm -hmm. And there might be one group that for whatever reason <laughs> really was challenged to finish it. So, so that's not necessarily going to be helpful in most instances to wait, you know, until that very, very last one is done to kind of 
how, how do we, as we break these segments up, how do we sort of make sure that we don't end up with, you know, five hours later in the class? Was sure. Ended, yeah. yeah. And we'll always have that way. Right? We'll have the students that are really quick, like the groups that like got done fast, you know, and then the students that kind of over time and then the students that will take a longer time. I think that's a good, good question. And so a lot of active learning is a lot of facilitation on behalf of the instructor. So going around and seeing what each group is doing and where they're progressing, I think is really important. But I, I definitely agree. If there's a, there's a group that's taking a little longer, I think it's, it's important to really think about where they, like, what point they've made it to um, with regards to the learning goals that they had set for them. Because if it's just a few things left, you know, that they'll, they'll still get the kind of gist of it. I think it's also important to be able to move on in the class. And I think we have to often do that, right? It's just the constraints of of a class schedule and working within time bounds and whatnot. So I would say just being keenly aware of where students are and where the different groups are and just making sure that they're able to accomplish at least the majority of what we hope for them to do. And sometimes, you know, you do it for, you know, later, do it individually for homework or, you know, just so you can go back and, and look at it or, you know, maybe we're regrouping as a class and we're discussing it. But yeah, I definitely agree that it's important to have that. Sometimes also just in a, again, in an active learning setting, sometimes setting, um, you know, warnings, right, for the students like, oh, you know, try, try to wrap up and just encouraging them to move along. So the groups that, you know, might be taking a little bit of a longer time for many reasons, you know, maybe they, they're carefully doing it, you know, they're, they're trying to, really, you know, answer it well and get, get to the meat of it, et cetera. But also just giving them, I think those continual kind of, you know, warnings, oh, you know, let's wrap up in just a few minutes or see where you get to, I think can also encourage them along. Yeah. Something that I have admitted to in the past, but still is a challenge for me and know how important it is to have the instructions somewhere visually. So that could be on a presentation, on a projector, in a classroom, or it could be on the web-based, you know, just having that up there for sure. everybody. But that just can make such a huge difference in terms of that they know, as you said, Tracy, that this is the outcome, this is the goal. And then if I can have some kind of a timer too, whether I'm the one literally typing into the breakout rooms, you have X minutes left, but that'll help sort of, as you said, create a good, healthy sense of urgency if I know how far I need to get. Mm -hmm. And now I know how long I have to get there. So that's really helpful. Well, before we get to the recommendation segment, I did want to have you share about another tool that is called Who's in Class? What can you tell us about this tool and how it can help us have more inclusive teaching? Sure. Well, we've always wanted to, you know, my collaborators and I worked on this tool together think about ways that we could do some kind of just-in-time inclusive teaching. So knowing that every class is different, who comes to class, who's in the class, and thinking about ways in which we can capture that earlier. Sometimes it's like you, you get to know the students, but it's later in the course. And so how can we capture just certain things kind of very early on, and we can actually tweak our course a bit. We're not going to whole redesign it right at this point to actually incorporate that information so that it's very much so responsive again, and I use that word a lot, but to the class that we're teaching. So the Who's in Class Form was a tool that was basically developed with that in mind and with that goal to help instructors be more inclusive in their teaching by learning early on more about their students in a way that felt, you know, a little bit 
safer for students. Um, we did get a lot of student feedback on the form we got before, you know, actually using it, faculty, staff, etc. So we had all of them comment upon it. So we asked questions like about identity, about how much do they work? What does an inclusive classroom mean to them? And an article that I know is going to go in the show notes just came out on our article, a, a small kind of tips and tools article that gives some of the feedback that we got when we did this, when we implemented this tool with, you know, the research study aspect of it. But that's basically what the who's in class form is. Now, the who's in class form, we did make it anonymous so that students feel comfortable. And that's based on feedback from students because of some of the questions. Not every instructor does uses that form only, though, because they might not want some they might want to know some things that are not anonymous right about their class. And that absolutely that makes perfect sense. But this particular form, because of the questions, we kept it as anonymous. And so the students will complete it at the beginning. It's an online kind of survey. It's put online. They'll complete it at the beginning of the course. And then the instructor will look at the results in aggregate. That's also our students told us look at them in aggregate because we don't want to be identified yet, um, you know, for, for these things. And some students will disclose later, which we did find as well. Then what happens is this is a good partnership with the Center for Teaching and Learning as well. So we would also be able to talk to instructors about what, what are some things you're learning about your students. And what are some things that you can do in response to that for your course to make small changes, right, just small ones that would allow it to be more inclusive for your students. And so there's this process after using the form, looking at the results, reflecting on the results as well, then actually going in and doing those things. So they came up with plans for how they would do that as well. So we did, in fact, ask, you know, we studied, we did a study on it so that we could have an evidence-based tool. And that's our goal. We want tools that we recommend to work. <laughs> and we know there's evidence that, that they do work. And so we did a study on it and we did you know, capture what changes the instructors made in their courses. And then later in the semester at the very end, we both asked the professors and the students what they felt about the form. So the students, you know, did you feel comfortable using this form? You know, did it really help you share things that you normally wouldn't have shared with your professor? And so this article that has come out kind of captures that. So you'll see a lot of positive results for the students with regards to the benefits of the form and their instructor using it. And many, most of the instructors really appreciated also using the form. And so sometimes what would happen is some of the instructors thought, oh, there's not a lot of diversity in my class because of what's on the form. And that's what comes up a lot in certain types of settings. And so what we do is we dig deeper too in those and say, oh, but, but look at this, you know? And so that sometimes that level of reflection um, is helpful because all of our students are different, right? Like we're not the same. <laughs> so, all, so there's things that we can really think about and that can usually come out some way in, in the form itself. But we see the whole diversity of range of, of class makeups. And that's why the beauty of having a form like that, because it's gonna give you that information. So a lot of the students really felt like their instructors really cared to know that information. They really appreciated it. They did think they acted upon it as well, because there's one thing to survey the students and, and to ask and not act upon it. We did tell the instructors to be very intentional and to say, what are you doing to change you know, your class? And so that the students are understanding and seeing that. So 
that was also um, encouraged to also communicate that as well. So that's the who's in class form a tool, and we do have it in the in the in the book. Um, what inclusive instructors do. It's also in that article, a supplemental material. So anyone is welcome to download the tool. Before we talk about our recommendations, I wanted to ask just about one of the items from the who's in class, and that is the question, I suppose it's two technically speaking, but they go together. That's the item that asks, I work on or off campus, and then that's a yes, no answer, and then the number of hours that I work per week is, and then a fill in the blank. Would you speak a bit about what you discovered, both in terms of what kind of information that a faculty member might get from that, and then two or three examples of what someone might do with that information in their teaching. Mm -hmm. So that's a good question, Bonnie, because that's a question that actually surprises a lot of instructors as to how many hours their students work. So the second part of that, they're really surprised about that. This is going to be a question that's going to change depending on the institution, depending on the students, because I can see like some schools, maybe some students are commuting more, they're working in different places, you know, environments and whatnot, or residential college, you know, they're, they're going to be on campus more. So with regards to this, what we've seen the most kind of actionable things is when students are working more or long hours or they communicate some information about that, that the instructor is thinking about also the workload of the class and, and also the timing of deadlines and, and that nature and how that factors in the students' lives, right, as, as well. So like the whole, the, being a more holistic approach to students with regards to their outside kind of responsibilities and what, what, they, what they can do, but still having the expectations, right, of, of the course and upholding those, but still being very cognizant of those. So some of the things to think about for that, some, some of the professors will be a little bit more flexible um, with, you know, maybe having some flexibility built into their syllabus with regards to due dates, which is a good practice anyway, or, or, or assignments, like maybe they can drop one assignment, that type of thing. So those, those types of things definitely um, did come up as more actionable. I think a big thing about that one, though, is a lot of awareness, like, oh, they're doing all of these other things. So just requiring them to do a lot of external types of things if they're working a lot of outside of class, group work outside of class, a lot of that, you know, in a class that, you know, is sharing that we're doing a lot of, you know, we work a lot outside of class, that's going to be hard. So they also thought carefully, you know, about those aspects of their course design. And is this the best design for these students, you know, right now? Are there other ways that we can do these types of assignments? Um, so those are were some of the things that have come out of that. But I would say even the biggest thing is like, wow, my students do a lot <laughs> outside of my class. And I think that's actually really important for instructors to know, because sometimes it's like my class is the only class, right? Like, the, And the only thing in their lives, but it's not, you know? So I think that awareness in itself is actually very valuable for instructors. To me, it can be so helpful because like, like you said, I echo what you said about the awareness element of it in terms mm -hmm. of if this was different than what I experienced when I was in school. So that, I mean, that's a really helpful thing. Wow, this is not the same thing. Because mm -hmm. too many times in my early, early teaching days would be people would ascribe that to laziness or I mean, I mean, <laughs> all kinds of ugly biases that can come out of something sure. like that lack of awareness. But the second thing is, if it is in parallel 
to what that professor experienced for them to share their stories can be incredibly helpful too of, Hey, when I was in school, I did this and this, and, and I, I don't necessarily, I'm not able to share stories like that, but students are often surprised to ever learn that I wasn't a straight A student. <laughs> so that's always like a, like a funny thing to have yourself appear more human. So whatever it is sure. that we do to be connecting of like, no, this is, <laughs> you know, wherever we have those, those things where we might be able to come across as more empathetic and therefore approachable people back to the circling way back to the sense of belonging, you know, that can yeah. be helpful. So. Yeah, and to to just to piggyback off of that, the who's in classroom, many professors will use it as a as a tool for that. Like they'll actually share, they'll see, see things in their class and they'll share about it. Like for example, they see students who are first generation in their class, they'll share about their first generation, you know, kind of experiences as first generation students um, and stories and things like that. So that does happen a lot where also the professor will share more about themselves. And I think that opens the door to it a little bit more too, which is really nice. I think in building belonging and fostering belonging, as you mentioned. Well, this is the time in the show where we each get to share our recommendations. And I'd like to start out with a book that I read. It was actually the first time I can recall reading a book, both in audio form and in written form. So I would go back and forth. So I'm, you know, doing the dishes and I go to switch to the audio form or if I was driving or what have you. And that was really nice. You know, the technology today can let you know where you left off. And that was incredibly convenient to me. And the topic was incredibly beneficial. The book is called Academic Ableism, Disability and Higher Education mm-hmm. by J.T. Dolmage and really, really enjoyed the book. The guy, it's not the author who narrates the audiobook. I can't recall his name and I didn't note it down, but he was a tremendously good narrator, kept my attention completely and I learned so much. I also want to recommend the associated online resources for academic ableism. It was almost like a whole nother book in a good way in, in terms of really, if you want to take this, your learning and really apply it even more specific things around the syllabus, specific things around the way the class is designed. It was really, in fact, uh, ironically, Tracy, a lot of the things that we talked about today are coming out there specific with regard to disability. Mm-hmm. And then uh, another thing that I came across in this reading and building of community is the Canadian Journal of Disability Studies. And that's an open access journal. So these are just really good resources if you would like to be expanding your learning about ableism and specifically in a higher education context. So Tracy, I'm going to pass it over to you for your recommendations. Sure. Those sound like wonderful resources, by the way, Bonnie. I have to check them out. So I have two books that I'd like to recommend. The first one is called Social Chemistry, Decoding the Patterns of Human Connection by Marissa King. And this is a really interesting book that I read with a colleague. And we talked about, you know, various types of networks. That's what the book is is about and your networks and how that can actually impact you know, your success, but also, you know, you need certain networks at different times in your life. And it's based on these research supported principles around networks and, and networking. And I definitely could see the applications in many aspects of my life. For example, I saw the aspects as an educational developer and building a center, or I also saw them with faculty, faculty new to an institution, what networks do you have or, or in your discipline? So it was a really neat uh, book. And I was also able to meet the author and talk a little bit about it. So that was really neat. So that's social chemistry. 
The second recommendation I have is the book, What If I Say the Wrong Thing? 25 Habits for Culturally Effective People by Myers. And so I really like this little handy dandy book. It's also like kind of like a small kind of guidebook. And it's actually a book that our consortium where I'm at of schools, they ran a book group around this particular book. But what I really love about this book is oftentimes, you know, when we think about inclusive teaching or other types of diversity types of initiatives and whatnot, we think about, oh my goodness, what if I do the wrong thing, right? And and what if I say the wrong thing? Or, you know, where am I at? How do I check where I'm at? This book really gives a lot of really interesting examples and a lot of good recommendations for different types of scenarios, how you can kind of improve your thoughts around inclusivity in general and what you should know about yourself. And how do you not say the wrong things and 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 whatnot? So it's a it's a it's a really interesting book that you know I'd also recommend. Oh, these both seem so good. I want to read both of them right now. <laughs> the list always gets longer. Thank you so much, Tracy, for coming on the podcast and sharing about your book, Inclusive Teaching, as well as your co-authors um, as well on that project. And for all of that you were able to share, including these great recommendations, I so appreciate being connected with you and, and look forward to that continuing. My pleasure. And thank you again, Bonnie, for inviting me on the show. Thanks once again to Dr. Tracy Addy for joining me on today's episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. If you would like to see the show notes for today's episode, you can head on over to teachinginhighered.com slash 394. You can also subscribe to the weekly update and receive each episode's show notes in your email, along with other quotable words, recommendations, and resources that don't show up on the main episode. Head on over to teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe to sign up for the weekly update. And thank you so much for listening. I'll see you next time.